Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, September 18th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? Not too bad. Trying to find a swing in this transition and get more of a rhythm going. Um, September, that like big summer to fall month. How about you? I am tired. And yeah. I actually forgot to tell you this offline, but I was in your neck of the woods this weekend. What? At the Parc National de Oka. Oh. Just about 15 minutes from Montreal. Come on. Nine and a half hours each way. Oh my goodness. And spent 30 hours camping and at the beach playing frisbee. I'm also tired, but that's because I drank, like was mixing drinks all afternoon with a thing of Dr. Pepper and rum. And like, I, I've kind of cut back on coffee. Like I wasn't drinking it for a good two, three weeks and I could not sleep for shit last night. And it wasn't until like 4am it hit me like, oh my God, this is the caffeine from the Dr. Pepper. I have no caffeine tolerance, which is normally a thing to be celebrated. But like, that was not on my radar. Like, oh, well, if I'm drinking this pop from like four till 9pm, that's going to destroy my sleep. Um, so I guess we're both bit burning the midnight oil on this one a little later than usual too. Yeah. Yep, sir. Uh, had to give your, your buddy Paul a shout out. He, uh, he's mean at skulls and flowers. Yep. Booster. Absolute nails. <laughs> All right. Uh, good stuff. I think we've got plenty to talk about today. A little NFL recap week two. Fantastic stuff. Um, We've got a little bit of Davis Cup action, which I didn't realize was going on until uh, Friday. And then some combat corner. And of course, the the main story that's really taking the hockey world by storm the last 24 hours. But before we get there, Max, it seems like we're back on the Storts train for this one. What do you got for me today? I want to try something a little different. Uh, saw a video circulated on, on Twitter, actually the day I was editing and uploading last week and I had to bookmark it and save it because it was just the worst thing of the week. But a little preface first about the economy in the developed Western world. Um, it sucks if you are not very, very rich. The cost of living is a crisis. Canada, the worst country in the world for that, but Australia, the US, the UK, lots of developed Western countries over the last 20 30 years have treated housing like an investment and made it almost impossible to afford. And the COVID greedflation, inflation, oil spike has just been a cherry on top. And the purchasing power of the low and middle class has not been lower in the last 60 years, if I'm not mistaken. Keep all that in context as you watch this video I'm about to show you um, of an Australian multi-millionaire describing uh, his thoughts on the economy and what needs to happen to make it get better. Here we go. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40-50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them. Um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through 
hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. That blew my mind. Yeah, you can see why I had to go for that. Um, so that guy's name is Tim Gurner. He's Australian, as you could tell. He has a net worth of over $500 million. And the fact that it's in real estate is just the cherry on top. Yeah. I need to redact my thoughts on what I think this fucking piece of shit deserves. Um, but I'm curious if you find his comments stupidly terrible or terribly stupid. I, I think it's beyond... I think it's stupid and terrible, if there that makes go. sense. Yeah, we can't, we can't, we can't be light on this. Tim, my friend, uh, you need to go live some places, buddy, and not like Bora Bora and Cyprus with your pals. <laughs> this is, that is someone that is so far down the capitalism rabbit hole that there's no help. It's almost awesome to hear the quiet part said so out loud. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I'm sure, like in the 80s, pre-video, pre-social media, this shit was said like all the time. Um, he did apologize and backtrack on the comments, but it, it's clear which was the damage control and which was the true thoughts leaking out. So had to bring that one in for this week. Yeah, I thought it was going to be... Uh... Lauren Bobert, but we'll see. <laughs> Maybe we'll take that offline. No comment. All right. All right. On to the more stupid and terrible, really, here, but sports and sports now. Mike Babcock, one of the shorter head coaching tenures uh, in recent memory for me in the NHL. The Blue Jackets take a swing many years removed from the famous head coach being fired by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, he does his little rehabilitation project. And then it all goes south, though. What happened? Wow. Two months. He made it two months, right? And those two months were not regular season months. No, no, of course, naturally. And I guess... We could save this for the end, or we could say it at the beginning. But the the most important theme is that the world is getting smarter, especially the hockey world. Right? The, the these things fly two percent less every year than they used to. Right? We're cleaning it up. There's more diversity. There's more inclusion. There's more just treating human beings with respect. That's happening, and that is leading the game in a better direction. And Mike Babcock, who left the league and had many stories come out afterwards and couldn't find a job, there's reasons, right? There's plenty of these players that he's alienated and made feel terrible. And it was a desperate act by a Columbus Blue Jackets franchise that's won one playoff series in the last decade under a regime that has been around now, Kekaline, in 10 years. And uh, the president's been there for 11 years. And they went, you know what exactly what we need? A guy who has been out of the league for two years and is very controversial. And a guy who is going to be under the microscope and bring all of this unwanted attention to a small market 
of Columbus. And they just did it because he won one Stanley Cup with one of the greatest Detroit Red Wings teams the last 30 years. (laughs) He really raised the level of that Canadian Olympic squad too. Like, I don't know what they would have done without him. Crosby, Malkin, Weber, Latang, Subban. Like, those guys weren't doing much on their own. No, of course not. So he comes in, Babcock. And, you know... The athletic phrased it so well. Like, what is wrong with lunch or a coffee? It's so easy, right, to have a normal human interaction. But instead, we hear from, of all places, the Spit and Chicklets podcast, one uh, Paul Bissonette (laughs) reports on the fact that Mike Babcock has been having players come into his office and show him pictures off his phone. And they, they, they phrase it pretty plainly or vaguely and leave it up for interpretation of what that means and so of course this ignites uh, as a story um people are making jokes they are just freaking out about what level of privacy and 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 what babcock's been doing like is he just taking their phone and going through it airplaying it on the tv uh so then a statement gets released by Boone Jenner, the captain, who the story initially was about, Mike Babcock and the Columbus Blue Jackets team, that uh, it was consensual, that Boone Jenner uh, was, or Babcock asked Jenner to show him photos of his family, and he showed him pictures of his own family in return as just kind of a way of getting to know someone. And they thought that that was going to be the end of it. But of course, not when you're dealing with someone like Paul Vistnet, right? The it's Twitter, nasty. the tweets speak for themselves. And he comes back and he says, sure, that could be for this one player. But I have, this is the guy who, as much as you have insiders who are now friends with agents, GMs, all that stuff, no one knows the players better in the league than this podcast. This <laughs> is their voice, right? They interview these guys. They do events. They do things that are just in line with this new generation of players. And so no one knows the pulse better. And so even though the delivery is not the most professional medium, he is saying what the players think. And the majority of them come out and say, I wasn't comfortable with this, especially the younger guys in the room. Kent Johnson is a second year player. He's going to be an absolute stud. And he's walking in there and Babcock's like, show me your pictures on your phone. Like he doesn't have photos of his family on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what are we doing here? And it's just, it's such an unnatural and weird thing to do. No boss ever asks their employees to just show them pictures off their phone. It's something that maybe comes up organically when you're having a lunch or a coffee, right? And so, of course, this gains steam back again. And the Blue Jackets believe or realize this terrible mistake that they've made. And and today, Mike Babcock resigns as the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets after making it two months and not even into preseason. Uh, and I think this is the last time we see of him in the NHL. But who knows? There's some really stupid GMs in this league. It's just there was something else. I I don't know if you have an athletic membership. I see lots of headlines and never go through the stories. So I can just quote theses. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not a problem exclusive 
to the NHL, there is this coaching carousel where there is this overvaluing of experience and past tenor um, that just these owners and GMs seem really unwilling to take on new blood and seem to prefer to just circle the dregs and like try and turn the wheel over and think it will click. And that's one half of it. And the other half of it is like, I'm failing for a better word than like the stupidity of Mike Babcock, like having gotten a second chance after being reported for being all around terrible to work with um, by the end of his Maple Leafs tenure and goes in guns blazing, being terrible to work with. And we were talking a little offline, like, is this young players being too sensitive? Is this like, is there just some of that like old blue blood grit mentality that's missing uh, with the new blood coming into the game? And like, I want to be somewhat sensitive and in agreement to that because like some of my experiences like do enjoy like that hazing like fratty uh like tough to get in like bonding experience but like context is everything and you build comfort and trust and then you take things further when you are a new coach on a team uh, with no rapport with a locker room and you have this past history of being difficult, terrible, and like something of a mental terror with the people you work with. Like what on earth are you thinking that you can just stroll? Like, is it because it's a small market and no one's going to care? Like it, it just seems like, do you truly just not think it's a big deal? Like, I'm a little at a loss, like, what the thought process was on this. Or, and, like, just the out-of-touchness, like you said, that, like, it takes an alternative media form, like a podcast that's no-holds-barred, uh, that, God bless them, is completely unprofessional, is, like, the only source tapping into this. It's just such an interesting snapshot of the different forms of media and what a lot of traditional media has become um so like a lot of different angles here it's yeah it 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 just speaks to me that once again the inner circle of nhl executives and coaches they find their buddy and partner up again and they're always going to have another spot in the league and it's time for not only Babcock to be gone, but I think the end of Columbus's reign there in, in senior management, if you can't get it done after 10 years, like for Dubas, it was seven, right? For some of these other GMs, they don't even make it a decade. Like Kakalainen's made some solid, strong moves, but it's never produced any results. So I just think that they've got to look in a new direction as a franchise and there's lots of exciting young talent that they have coming up. So you really want to make sure that you, you handle it with care. It might be good. Was Tortorella the last coach or was there one in between them? I think there was one in between. Um, Still though. Who, yeah. Who didn't last very long, but it's just, it's a mess. It's a mess. And, and they, they couldn't, couldn't do it any worse, I guess, in their decisions. It would, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Brad Larson in between Tortorella and Babcock. Okay, so they gave it one try with a guy who I name I haven't heard before. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. He went 62, 86, and 16. Oh, so that's two seasons? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Torts was on the Flyers this past year. Who knows? I don't, yeah. yeah, I guess it. he bounces around and does nothing anymore as well. Seems like we've exhausted this story, but um, I think we've yeah, always got to talk about it, especially when he was a guy who used to be part of the Leafs organization. Yeah, and like I was skeptical on the firing, and that was one. Like I used to be very like, "Come on, what's changing? The coach really going to do?" And then the total shift and everything on the Maple Leafs like kind of changed how I think about a lot of that when we replaced Babcock with Keefe and. Just everything seemed to get more positive. Yeah. I mean, one one of the guys is going through people's phones and the other one actually wants to let his stars do stuff. <laughs> do the stuff they want to do. <laughs> it's not hard to see that difference. All right. Maybe we can get to some positivity now. This has been a dark front end of the pod. <laughs> Yeah, I know, especially starting with Stortz. I was just getting an update here in the Steelers-Browns game. Uh, I need Deshaun Watson to do something because <sighs> I need to win this week. And the fantasy's been rough to start the season. And what does Deshaun Watson go and do? He throws a pick six on the first play of the game. So good times. Is that like the second worst first four plays for a quarterback this season? Yikes. Too soon? That's a tough one. Shout out Aaron Rodgers, man. That's so disappointing. He had he ran out on the field on 9-11 with the American flag. It was this amazing moment. So much hype. And uh, yeah, I think we'll all remember him as a New York Jet when his career is all said and done. All right. On that note, let's jump into NFL Week 2 here. Uh, Other AFC North matchup that's happened yesterday before this uh, Browns-Steelers matchup tonight. Baltimore Ravens have jumped out to the front of the pack in the AFC North with a decisive victory over the Cincinnati Bengals. Dominant on both sides of the ball, Lamar Jackson had a really, really spectacular performance. And the Bengals, I mean, this is preseason week two for Joe Burrow, and he looked to have re-injured his calf again. I was assuming it wasn't healthy, and he didn't have that connectivity with his receivers yet this season on the new updates they've done to the playbook. And so I was not high on them in this week either, even though all the experts were picking Cincinnati. I I wish I had it on record. Maybe we do. We'll go, go back, check the tape. But I'd like to get credited for a, a, a result on this one as the Ravens go 2-0 and, and, the, and the Bengals are in a whole heap of trouble here at yeah. 0-2. Are, are the alarm bells sounding yet? No, because they started 0-2 last year. Okay. But with Burrow being hurt, that definitely puts them in a worse position than they were last mm-hmm. year. I just think this roster is too talented to not be in the mix in the wild card. But they, they're digging themselves a hole. It's a bad offensive line, eh? Yeah, and they've tried to address it in certain places. I think a Ravens defense and uh, 
Oh goodness, who did Cincinnati play in Week the One? Browns. The Browns. I, I, in those conditions, like I think those are two pretty tough defenses to play early in the season. But it's not going to get any easier in the AFC with some of the other teams that they have to play, especially within their own division with the Just Steelers as well. When you have like a semi-injured quarterback, like that becomes so much more important and relevant. Yeah, they they have historically not been able to protect Joe Burrow as well. So mm-hmm. uh, not really something you can address now as the season get underway because you can't really find a quality offensive lineman just in the free yeah. agency market. But we'll see if there's other things they can do play call wise, scheme wise, that could give Burrow a little bit more time back there once he's back and help healthy, hopefully. I guess quick shout out to Patrick Mahomes while we're speaking about Burrow because he got his contract restructured today on his birthday so that he became the he is going to now re-become the highest paid quarterback in the NFL for the next four years. They restructured his deal. So he's gonna get two hundred and sixteen million over the next four years. Not bad. He's almost to the level of Anthony Davis, but not quite. That's kind of insane. Yeah, couple. Yeah, kind of a distinct difference between those two sports, but we've talked about that before. Let's keep rolling here on the on the Chiefs. They scuffle through a win over the Jacksonville Jaguars. Their offense still looks very incohesive, and he just doesn't have the weapons. And I mean, Travis Kelsey's distracted by dating Taylor Swift, which I don't blame the guy. That's that's a lot to handle, but that's going to be very smooth. And there's no, <laughs> yeah. It oh, just it, he's it's hard to focus on the offense when that whole sideshow is happening, right? Yeah, like you've got to be like running through the lyrics she might write about your future breakup, like every it, time you're on the field. Exactly. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. But they still get the win over the Jaguars, which is an important uh conference win for them to get uh early in the season. The Seattle Seahawks set their season back on track with a win over the Detroit Lions. Always fun when these two play. We remember the wild card deciding game last year, and there's not a whole ton of offense or defense, pardon me, from either of these teams. Geno Smith slinging all over the field, and Jared Goff finally broke his no interception streak. He was third place all time in consecutive pass attempts and uh, finally had it broken uh, on Sunday there. The Buffalo Bills blow out the Las Vegas Raiders. The Atlanta Falcons beat the Packers on a late last-minute field goal. Jordan Love had the funniest play of the weekend. Uh, the O-lineman did not snap the ball when he was trying to sneak, and so everyone was frozen as he basically just stumbled into the back of one of his linemen trying to sneak and was expecting the ball, and it didn't come. The Los Angeles Rams hang with the 49ers. Puka Nakua, the most receptions by a first year receiver for his through his first two games ever wow yeah yeah he is catching the ball a ton and when cooper Cup comes back this rams offense actually looks a lot more deadly than everyone thought it would at the start of the season unfortunately for the rams the niners they just have too much talent i think they're probably the best team in the nfl right now barring any injuries uh, and, and they win that game I think the top three teams in the NFL are the are the Niners. I think the Miami Dolphins are there as well. They go two and zero on the season with a win over the New England Patriots. They just their offense is unstoppable with Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddle, Tua Tagovailoa. 
the only highlight of the week that made it on was the blocked field goal. Yes, yeah, the play call by Bill Belichick. It, I mean, something like that happens and the entire internet goes, why doesn't everyone do this? Mm-hmm. And it's because he literally had to time it perfect. Like, that's why you see the Troy Polamalu highlights where he jumps over the line. He did that twice in his career. Yeah, Not everyone can do it. It was just a well-timed play. Uh, big block, but the Patriots can't get it done, and they start their season 0-2. And then I think the other team in that top three is the Dallas Cowboys. Not oh. necessarily for their offense, although CeeDee Lamb looked phenomenal yesterday, but they have a top three defense in the league, and Micah Parsons is currently a game wrecker. It just he He's moving differently out there. Now fully fledged, like I think third year in the league, has all the tools and now the necessary experience of going up against these guys for two seasons, peak athletic prime. When he runs, he can basically decide, like, I'm going to get by you without even you touching me. He doesn't necessarily even engage linemen at the line of scrimmage. He stutter steps them and then just glides past them. He's so fast right now. And he's on track for 18 sack season, kind of one per game, which is going to be up there in, in the top sack seasons of all time. And so really, really fun to watch him so far. And, and this Cowboys defense has been dominant. They would have not given up. They would have been through two games without giving up a touchdown if Garrett Wilson had literally made the best reception of the season so far, stealing an interception away and then taking it to the house. Uh, for a 60 yard touchdown uh, yeah but the Cowboys defense looks very very good so far in the early season uh, the Chargers defense does not and the whole Chargers team continues to just be bad voodoo they lose in overtime to the Tennessee Titans on a field goal uh, and start their season 0-2 which only makes the Broncos start marginally better as they just keep disappointing me haven't made the playoffs since the super bowl in 2015 and uh for a while there the super bowl could pave over the pain but it's eight years now and Mm -hmm. nothing and sean payton came and we thought it would be improvement but russell wilson after the first 15 plays of the game is not good and they have now lost the raiders and commanders and i mean crazy moment to end the game 50-yard Hail Mary gets batted twice and caught for a touchdown. And then they need the two-point conversion to send the game to overtime, and they can't get it converted. I don't care about the pass interference call. They didn't get it done. And there's no chance they're making it to the playoffs now at 0-2 because they have to play the Chiefs twice. They have to play the Chargers twice. And it's just so depressing that this is the way, like, they're going to have to play the Cowboys and the Eagles. It's just, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So I'm already out on the on the Broncos. I need a new team to share for if anyone wants to hit hit us up in, in the comments. Still don't have one, so maybe we can find one to jump on together for the rest of the season. Beautiful. I love it. All right, Fantasy Player of the Week. Brian Robinson torches the Broncos for 27 fantasy points. He was going for $1 and $2 in a lot of auction draft leagues, and so if you were picking him up this week, 
uh, and starting him. Kudos to you. That's a massive bump. There were some big scores put up in fantasy this week, but I always try to pick guys who aren't expected to put up big numbers. So shout out Brian Robinson. Also share last name. So that's always a plus in my book as well. And that's it for week two of the NFL. All right. Well, it was a bit of a last minute decision to watch the title fight between Valentina Shevchenko and Alexa Grasso, but very glad I did it. Um, it was the best fight I've seen in the flyweight division in its existence. The fight ends with a very controversial draw. So I want to talk through each round what I saw, how I scored it, how I feel about the decision, uh, and a couple thoughts on Shevchenko's ringside manner. Um, this was a head scratcher going in. Like Shevchenko had been so dominant for so long and on paper still felt like far above, but have just seen so many times in the sport. Like they're on top of the world until they're not, until that one loss, and they never get back to that spot. And uh, some people just seem to get other fighters' numbers. And it was really hard to know if that was the situation, considering the age and the mileage of Valentina Shevchenko. Like, she, this is someone who had a lot of fights before even like entering the world of MMA. Um, but you did feel like the versatility and skill was still there. And in the first round, you really saw that. Um, you saw more intent, you saw more snap and ferocity uh, it normally looks like she's point fighting more and i thought grasso did okay on the feet but shevchenko took it fairly clearly and then the second round was where it got interesting though because uh shevchenko i think for the first time at flyweight if not in all ufc i don't remember off the top of my head if amanda nunez dropped her but i don't think she did uh, uh, Alexa Grasso catches Shevchenko flush, drops her, and follows up with some really ferocious knees in the clinch. Uh, and for the first of several times, I thought the fight might get stopped right then and there and that the damage might accumulate. A lot of credit to Shevchenko for getting out of it. And uh, I'll get back to this a couple times, but like the thing that did her the best in this fight was the takedowns because even though she was technically a little more sound and strategic than Grasso, Grasso just had more pop and more strength and was doing more damage with her shots. So she was able to take three or four to land two good shots. And then Shevchenko was the one backing up, the one wearing more damage. And uh, that was leading to then more strikes for Grasso. And if it wasn't for the takedowns of Shevchenko, I think the fight would have snowballed in Grasso's favor. Um, but when it looks like she might be really in trouble, she was just able to blast these lightning quick double legs. And um, sometimes Grasso got up well, but in this case, in the second round, she didn't. I thought Shevchenko did nothing with the control time, no damage, no submissions, getting close to finish. So I still scored the round pretty comfortably for Grasso, 1-1. I think that's pretty uncontroversial. Third round, Shevchenko's best. Uh, most dominant round. Uh, she gets a takedown very early, does a beautiful transition to a full mount guillotine, spends a lot of time working on it, and 
you can tell she was so furious that she had got submitted in her last fight and she really wanted that submission back oh so she went hard for the guillotine and did a really good job switching into that full mount to get it wasn't able to get a great camera angle on it and see what was really going on and how close it was didn't um grasso didn't seem too panicked about it so i i genuinely don't know how close it was um but shevchenko after losing that was able to get a body lock she really wanted that rear naked choke again you could tell she just wanted to even the score and do the same thing uh she didn't get too close to it so of duration she like controlled almost the entire round she had that one guillotine that looked like possibly that could lead to a fight ending sequence uh so an easy easiest round of the fight to score for Shevchenko um I don't know how dominant it was I want to circle back to the 10-8 question uh later on the fourth round the toughest round to score for me I thought Shevchenko it looked mostly like the first round where she was just landing a little more uh doing a little more defensively even though Grasso was landing more damaging shots uh there weren't just a few too few of them for me to feel like it was going Grasso's way and then Shevchenko just with a little error a little blooper um gets into a clinch situation and tries to turtle on the ground to make the knees to the head illegal but just puts her hand down doesn't get enough points of contact uh which that's not how you, the knees are still legal and for the second time I thought the fight might be over for with Grasso getting a finish she landed four or five really vicious knees and Shevchenko looked stunned wobbled and then Grasso with like the worst lowest IQ moment of the fight goes for a takedown and just tries to force a submission and gets quickly reversed with Shevchenko ending up on top those knees the um Shevchenko doesn't do anything with the top control Grasso scrambled up pretty quickly I, I don't want to I'm saying Shevchenko was winning on the feet but not decisively not clearly it wasn't just the knees uh like Grasso was landing her shots they were harder shots so it was like maybe 55 45 Shevchenko before those knees uh so for me that gave the round four to Grasso like those were by far the most damaging shots of the round so I had it 2-2 going into that fifth and then pause uh Shevchenko's sister last thing she says before uh walking out of the cage going into the fifth round be smart no mistakes no errors Val comes out three and a half minutes of what she did for most of the fourth what she did for the first it was really interesting they were talking about the poise um of Shevchenko and the experience but she had never been in a fight like this so she had never been in a five-round fight where she was getting damaged she was having moments but she wasn't clearly and decisively winning the fight um and they were talking about how like that was something Grasso hadn't really experienced and that showed too like she looked flat she looked done she didn't look like she knew what to do or like had it in her to really push early in that fifth but I thought Shevchenko looked lost and like out of her depth a little as well uh, which is why like I said at the start I think this was the best fight I've seen at flyweight like just they pushed each other in a way that we haven't seen Shevchenko pushed at flyweight uh, it felt like she was winning that fifth round pretty comfortably 
that would have given it to her three, two in my book. And then, like I said, she wanted that submission back so badly. Oh, she goes for a head and arm throw, uh, which is a reversible takedown attempt. If your opponent is on top of their shit and, uh, Grasso does a great job ducking out of it, switching the leverage, getting and getting on top. And then this is why I said, I think Shevchenko was also out of her depth, out of her comfort zone. It was a silly thing to try. And even sillier for me is she just shelled and Grasso started throwing. And for the third time of the fight, I thought Grasso was about to win by stoppage. And this was the closest because Shevchenko was not defending herself. She was just shelled. And I felt like if Grasso had kept throwing, um, the fight would have got stopped. But again, I think a low IQ fight movement for Grasso and she starts forcing, chasing the rear naked choke. Maybe she's just out of gas and simply cannot continue to throw. But uh, Shevchenko just purely goes into defense, answers the phone with both hands. Oh, so, so she just like puts her arms like this and makes it basically impossible. Just like, you'll see them do it with one arm often, but I've never, I rarely see a fighter put both arms and just tries to survive the round. It was so such like damage and much like 90 seconds of dominance for Grasso that felt like pretty comfortable to give to Grasso. So I had it 3-2 Grasso. I was thinking maybe, maybe you could give a 10-8 to Shevchenko for the third round um, just because it was like four minutes of control and she had that guillotine. The decision comes. It's a draw. One judge gives it uh 3-2 Grasso, 1-3-2 Shevchenko, and one Mike Bell gives it 47-47 to make it a split draw with uh, the fifth round and that 90 seconds of like dominance and potential fight ending, justifying a 10-8 on his scorecard. We're almost out of time here. So the things I want to touch on is I'm not mad at the draw. I felt like this was an even fight where Shevchenko was better for longer, but Grasso consistently did more damage and hurt her more. And those two balance out where I feel there's no clear winner. I thought like the indignation DC had at like someone deserves to win. Like, no, when two fighters are incredibly close and like the decision matters so much, like someone doesn't always deserve to lose when it's that close and there's just a hair's breath. Like this is something we're making up. Um, like the only time a fighter deserves to win is a dominant decision or a stoppage. And second, oh my goodness, Valentin Shevchenko is the least gracious loser I have seen in the sport in a long time. Uh, in the ring, she says, well, it was Mexican night. It's too bad it's Me this fight happened on Mexicans Independence Day or I wouldn't have been robbed. The last fight, she like didn't accept the loss properly. This one, she didn't either. I think it's a real mental block for her and it makes me think she's on her way out because it sounded like she thought she lost none of the rounds, which is just so arrogant. And yeah, a awesome fight. I'm firmly team Grasso by the end of it and uh, we'll see for a trilogy. That's about all the time we got for this pod. Thank you everyone for listening. Sports Next Door, signing out.